While the offering's being taken, can you take your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 John, chapter 4, and verse 20. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 20. This is our third week on the topic of cold. This month in January, we have uh, just decided to undergo a four-week study on this idea that we as Christians, we have an obligation not to let our hearts grow callous, cold, and indifferent to God and others. And actually, the verse that we've camped on a little bit that we derive this study from is Matthew 24, 12, where it says that as the days get shorter, as the time for Christ's coming is coming closer, one of the signs that you can tell is that the love of most will grow cold. It actually says in verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The first week we said coldness occurs because as people distance themselves from God, they draw farther and farther away from the light. And of course they're going to grow cold. Last week we said as people are deceived about what the truth is, they start believing lies that change them and start making them callous and indifferent and cold towards the will of God. But today, really, our discussion is going to be the thrust of what this verse is. The topic is love. Because it says the love of most will grow cold. And the idea is the reason people grow cold is because they divide one from another. And so coldness occurs because we're divided from our neighbors. We're divided from our spouses, our brothers and sisters. And we can't be. If we're truly Christians, if we claim the name of Christ, we cannot grow cold when it comes to love. I'll be honest with you, this study for me this week is very difficult. It's a hard study, not because it's hard to understand, but because we don't really live like this. Look at 1 John 4. This is where we're going to camp, and this is what we're going to slowly go through. One verse, not a whole chapter. But the logic is very clear. Verse 20. It says, if anyone says, I love God. So if I say, I love God. Man, I love God. I love God. But he hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what he's saying, if I come out and I say, man, I was at a worship service the other day and I was crying or, you know, a devotional where I met God and I just love God. But I turn to you and I say, you know what? I'm sick of you. I hate you. It says that if I do that, I am a liar. I'm a verifiable liar. And then it gives us logic. And it uses logic based on, it's kind of like a 
a test. The way you can test is if you really love God, you draw from the well of the immediate, the real, and the observable to kind of test to see if the ethereal realm is true as well. Let me give an example. I was, uh, used, when I first started here, I decided to do this class to reach people in the community called Taekwondo. And I had a guy who was really good at Taekwondo come and teach students how to defend themselves with martial arts. We had one student, he came in and he goes, oh, I'm a black belt. I know how to do all this stuff. The leader said, that's great. You can help me a little bit. And over the course of the class, you could tell this guy had no idea what he was doing. But he'd say, oh, I know that. I'm a black belt. He'd say, okay, great. In every, every class, he would say, oh, I've learned that before. I'm a black belt. So what the leader decided to do is get some mats on Friday and to have some time to spar to see how good you're doing on your blocks and punches and defenses. And he started the sparring with the black belt. He said, you're going to spar with me. He goes, okay. Because, you know, you say you're black belt. I want to see how good you are. And to be honest with you, when they got on that mat, he tore him up. It was embarrassing. But there was a point. The evidence of your sparring now reveals if you truly possess the ability to do the rest. What you do in the observable, immediate reality reveals the truth in the larger, ethereal, harder-to-observe reality. There's a guy that came to my office one time. He goes, man, I want to be a missionary. I want to go to Africa or China, somewhere across the ocean to really, really reach people for Christ. Do you reach anybody in your hometown or family? You ever talk, well, I want to go over there. Well, do you talk to, like, your brothers and sisters about it? Well, I'm kind of scared to. If you can't can't do it here, it's not going to change over there. The immediate observable reality proves if you can actually do it. Or you ever get somebody that says, you know what? I'm going to start tithing if I win the lottery. Do you know what I could do for the church if I win the lottery? I'm just waiting to win that lottery. Do you do it now? Well, you know, waiting to win that lottery. The observable, immediate reality proves the reality on a bigger level. What God is saying here in 1 John 4.20, if you don't love your brother and your sister, your neighbor, your friend, you probably don't know God. That in and of itself should be done. Let's done preaching. How How do you do with your neighbors? Because I am going to start talking about that person. And that person is that person. If I say that person, it's that person that I don't have to love them. I don't want to love them. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But we're going to go through this. And the way I want to go through this is I want to give you it simple, easy. Because sometimes we'll get into all the Greek of what the word love means. But I'm going to create what's called an idiot's guide to love. Because really, we love to talk about love on the ethereal huge plane. Love 
where I want to go flying and cry. And Let's talk about it really simple. Keep it really simple. Here's what love is. The substance of love is basically the life of God in me. It is the proof. It's the real stuff that proves that God himself lives in me. Romans 5 says this. If I am justified by faith, meaning if I believe in Christ by faith, I have peace with God. Okay? But it keeps going. If my belief is genuine, I enter a land called grace. If my belief is genuine, it says I, I don't mind suffering in tough times because it produces in me experiences that bring hope. But then it says, and the love of God is poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit who's given to me. So the point of Romans 5 is if I genuinely have faith in God, I possess God himself. How do I know I possess God himself? I love. It's very simple. So when we go through an idiot's guide, we're going to talk about the real stuff that proves the life of God's in you, and it's just going to be four pages. Real simple. All deeds. The first one is, we're going to define it. Here's love defined. Love defined, I'm going to actually illustrate it by an example. But before I do, I just want to give you a warning. When I talk about love, this is about you, not the person you wish was listening to the sermon right now. This is about you. And you have to say, yeah, but if I do this, it's not going to affect the other person. I don't care. This is not about if it works or doesn't work. It just is. This isn't about pragmatism. It's about what love is. Okay, so here's love defined. I'm going to define it as the opposite of self. What is self? Let's say I'm in a fight with somebody. Self is I am in a relationship, but that relationship is about me. So here's how you define self. Self wants what's best for me. So if I'm in a relationship that is argumentative, it's tough, it's hard. What self does, it turns its back. It says, I'm done. And this side, who once was facing this way, turns its back and says, I am not going to move until the other person apologizes. And if this person says, I am not going to move until the other person apologizes, right here is cold. This is cold. Right now, you probably have a relationship where you're saying, I am not moving until they come around me and do what I want and apologize to me. What if this person's saying the same thing? It's kind of like two people in two different rooms saying, I am not going to call the other person until they call me. They'll never have a phone call. That is not love. That's self. What is love? Love is very simple. It's just the opposite. When there's offense, you try to engage the other person so you can restore the relationship. You want what's best for the other person. In every relationship, your goal is to be a blessing. And you do it in three ways. And I'll give you an illustration. When my daughter, Ginger, was, you were like going into third grade, I took you, Gio, and in a Joseph to Walmart because G Ginger needed a backpack. She needed a backpack for school. 
When we were in there, the boys found like a Nerf football or like a football they started throwing. And they said they wanted that ball. So Ginger needed a backpack. The boys wanted a ball. And so I said, put both of those into the cart. Then when we went to the checkout counter, there was candy up there. They didn't see it. And I said, I looked at them. I thought in my heart, they probably like some candy. So I said, you guys can pick one candy. So the whole point is, I, as a father, love my kids, so I get what they want. I try to get, I try to get what they want. I get what they need, and you know what? I go above and beyond because I love them. Actually, Jared had us read in the first service, Psalm 103.4. It says, God has rescued me from the pit. That's what I need. He rescued me from the pit. And then he crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy. He doesn't just leave me there. He gives me more and more and more. Love seeks to be a blessing in every relationship. That's love defined. Love has a distinctive. Love's distinctive. What do I mean by distinctive? What? This is what makes love different than everything else in the world. And I want you to go take your Bibles and go two books to the left of 1 Peter. Chapter 3, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. This is love's distinctive. And you need to really look at these verses. I'm just reading them very simply. But we sometimes have to make love very simple. So love defined is it's wanting the best for the other person to be a blessing for them. You want to meet their needs, their wants, and you want to do more just to be a blessing. Second thing, here's its distinctive. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So love one another with all you got, earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Here's its distinctive. Love's objective is to cover somebody's sins, their mistakes, their error, their foibles, their insults, their attempts at you. You cover them. You don't broadcast and expose them. Self, self has a nasty way of trying to always look better than the other person. And the way it does it is by exposing the other person's failures. Love covers them. There's an interesting story in Genesis 9. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, Genesis 9, verse 20. I asked this question in the first service. Who built the ark? Who built the ark? Second, I'll ask you guys, who built the ark? Who? Good, John, thank you. Because Bill Rexford in the first service said Moses. I said, Moses? Man, what kind of knowledge is going on in this church? So it's Noah built the ark. After Noah built the ark, the water it dissipated. So he started gardening. And his first thing he made in verse 20 was a vineyard. The first crop of Noah was a vineyard. And in verse 21 of Genesis 9 said, He drank the wine of the vineyard, and he became drunk. So Noah became drunk, and then it says, 
he laid uncovered in his tent. So Noah made wine, got drunk, and fell asleep naked in his tent. Then it says in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, the two older brothers, took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers, and their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So the idea is the youngest son exposed the indignity of his dad and even broadcast it, where the two older ones, they covered their dad's sin. Actually, because of that, Ham was cursed. The younger brother was cursed. The idea of love covers a multitude of sins is those that you love, which should be everybody you come in contact with, your objective is to cover, not expose, their indignity. Some people say, but yeah, what happens if they keep sinning? Well, love does hate evil, and it keeps confronting the sin and tries to change it. But its, it's objective isn't to relish in other people's failures so you look better. It's called mercy. You could put it like this. Love understands something every time it comes into relationship. Go ahead and hit it. It assumes the person I have a relationship with is imperfect. We, don't norm, we normally want the person I'm relating to to be perfect or to be at least up to my acceptable standard of behavior. If not, I don't want to have you as my friend. Do you know why marriages dissolve? Because the other person's spouse stops making them happy. A lot of people get married because they think that person I'm going to marry is going to make me happy. They aren't. They never will because they're broken. They're broken. You know how we basic base friendships on what they can offer me. So normally, you know the kind of friends we look for are the ones that make us laugh most of the time. If they can make me laugh and if they make me feel good, I'll let them be my friends. But once they start pouring out all of their problems, I don't want them as my friend anymore. And then what will happen is we will have friends as long as they make me feel significant. If they don't make me feel significant, if my family doesn't make me feel significant, my kids don't make me, I get mad, I get upset. If the church, I've been serving at the church, and they don't recognize how good of a worker I am. I want you to recognize me. That's self. Love, however, it kind of doesn't care. The distinctive of love is mercy. It covers sin. When you think about your relationships, do you do that? Or are you quick to mock? And do you mock for the purpose to sound better? Third thing about love, that's page two. Page three, remember, keeping it simple. Page three. All right, let's describe what somebody looks like who lives in love. By that, if we were to observe somebody right now who lived in love, what would they look like? And I know we'd say, well, Jesus, absolutely. But let's get even more specific. What will you look like if you start living in love? Well, first of all, it begins with standing on mercy. You engage relationships by mercy, not judgment, mercy, to cover. 
not expose. And so I'm out of mercy, all of my words are going to be M. See, I'm a pastor, I alliterate, and it's, it's brilliant. When you alliterate, they think you're smart. So I'm going to talk about three aspects of your life born out of mercy that if you really love, this is what you'll be like. We're first going to start with your mind. What is a person's mind like that loves? This is so hard. I've got two verses. Here they are. Philippians 2.3. Does anybody know offhand what Philippians 2.3 says? Treat others. Consider others better than yourself. That means when I go into a relationship, I go sit down at a table to have dinner. I go to sit down at a table to have lunch. I am not there to be the smartest person. I am not there to always have the last word. I don't always need to be the funniest one or have the best story. My objective is to make sure the people I am addressing feel listened to, heard, and respected. Remember this one guy, Michelle and I, when we were in Russia, we had this one guy in our team, his name was Buddy, and he goes, he'd always say this, it's really weird. He goes, I don't think anybody just really knows me. I just want to be known. I think that's what that means. It's to go into a relationship and to know that person. Well, my, my favorite way to put it is when somebody talks to you about their world, let them be the expert. You don't be the expert in their world. We do that all the time. Oh, I've done that. I know what you're talking about. No, you don't. You've never lived in my my body, you never, you don't know my circumstance. My dad was a college football player. He was really good running back. Like he's really good. But when I ran, when I was a running back in high school, he'd say, tell me, what, what is it like playing for your coach? He'd say, What's, how, do you, how do you do good in this system? i go, Dad, you know better than I. You're a college. He goes, Chris, I've never had your coach. I've never had your system. Tell me about it. I want to learn. Do you do that with your kids? Do you let them be experts in their world, or do you always have to teach them and always have to tell them how to live? Do you treat other people better than yourself? I dare say we don't. Then, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the wedding verse. It's beautiful on a Harlequin romance card. Love is patient. Love is kind. Keeps no record of wrong. Always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You want to sum all that up? Don't quit on somebody. I think we say, you know what? That person's offended me so much, I'm just done. I'm done with them. I'm done. You know what they've done with, to me in the past? So you're keeping records of wrong, and you're not trusting anymore, and, you don't, and you're giving up. I'm just, I quit. Who have you quit on? Who do you say, I never want to see their face again? That's not love. So it starts with your mind. Then it goes to your mind is connected to your mouth. Your mouth is the vehicle of relationship. When God wanted to have a relationship with me, he sent the word, his word. That's how he communicates. So the way we have relationships, the way we have love is we speak. And the way we should speak is Ephesians 4, verse 29, which says, 
every time I speak, I should want to build you up. That is so hard. So when you speak, the words you should say should be for the purpose of blessing the other person to make them stronger. If you do a study of words, I like to do a study of words in the Bible. Actually, if you go in the book of Proverbs, one third of the whole book of Proverbs is about your words. And that they have words that kill and words that bring life. I'll give you three words that bring life. Now, there are three E's. E, E, and E. First E is encouragement. Is to lift somebody up and to really give them encouragement based on what you see. So I see Wendy. Where did Wendy go? she gone? All right, so I see Heather over there. Heather, really, you are a great friend to Wendy and to your family, and you are faithful. You're a faithful person. And I mean that, and that's true. It's encouraging. Do you know how many people need, how much encouragement we need? It's incredible. Second one is empathy. Empathy is when you feel for the other person. When you feel their pain. I see, I see Aaron over there. Aaron is missing his wife today. I feel for you, Aaron. That's hard. His wife took off on him. You can spread that rumor. She left him. No, she didn't leave him. He's just missing his wife. I feel bad for you. All alone, you got to make mac and cheese this afternoon. It's tough. Actually, he'll probably hunt something in his backyard and just cook it right up. Empathy. Do you ever listen to somebody where you enter in emotionally with them? That builds people up like you won't believe. And then the third one's exhortation. Exhortation is teaching truth to people that isn't just your opinion, but you know it's what God wants for them. You hear God speak about somebody's situation, say, I, gotta, I really think this is what God's telling you. So I look at my son Joseph. Joseph, God's telling you to start obeying me. You got to do it. No, I'm kidding you, Joe. Joe obeys me all the time. Encourage me. And I feel bad for you to have a dad like me. Empathy. See? See, they all work. You do all three of those, and you're, that shows I am becoming a blessing in my tongue. The third one's tough. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the context is. Paul the Apostle is going to the church of Corinth and asking them for money to help a church that's poor. Corinth themselves are poor, but Paul is saying they're having a famine there. We, we'd like to raise, uh, have an offering. We'd like to raise money. And look how he applies the giving of money to love. So the first way you can tell you love is in your mind, then in your mouth, but how you spend. That really shows you where you're at. So 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9, listen to this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that, you, that your love is genuine. So he says, I want you to show how genuine your love is. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So what he's doing is he's saying, as an example for what I want you to do to show your love, Jesus was rich and he gave up his life to make us rich. He became poor 
so we'd be rich. If you love like Jesus, you do that for other people. That's love described practically. That's how I engage. I engage with my mind, my mouth, and what do you need? I'll try to help meet that need. Some of you are hearing this and you're saying, wait a minute, go ahead, next slide, you're saying this. What if I have no desire to love other people? What if I don't? Especially that person. Who is that person? I wrote about that person this week. I'll read for you. Actually, Jared thought I was cool that I used my phone. He said, do that again. You look like Matt Weida in time. No, I <laughs> Here's that person. That person is the one person that makes my blood boil. So as I'm saying this, is there anybody that that is that person? I don't like them at all. And I'm pretty sure they don't like me either. If you were to ask me to say something nice about that person, one positive comment, it would take everything out of me to do so. I just can't. That person has hurt me badly in the past, and they arrogantly carry on not considering they have ever done anything wrong. That person has slandered me, turned others against me, and I know they feel justified in doing so. That person doesn't deserve my kindness. Do you have that person in your life? It's funny, as I was, as I was reading this 1 John 4.20 and I was praying through it, I was convicted to the point where there's a number of that persons I had to pray for. And how I prayed for them is, I, know, I, just, I normally won't pray for people like that. But Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for them. So I prayed for good things to happen to them and really recognize God's grace in their life and thank him for it. And it's weird, it changes you. I was reading a quote by Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln says, you know the reason why I don't have enemies is because I turned them into my friends. When you turn people into your friends, they no longer, you no longer have enemies. I've read that like, oh, I don't like that. I like having enemies. Kind of fun to talk about them behind their back. That's wicked, Chris. I know, but it's fun wrong and if you don't love the brother that you see you really don't love God that you don't see and so people would say you know how hard that is that's just not practical why should I do that and the fourth page of the idiot's guide of love is simply because it's our duty it's our duty look at John 13 turn to John 13 John 13, 34 and 35. Francis Schaeffer once said, God has given non-Christians a litmus test to tell who are truly his. And this is it. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus writes, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And that word commandment is in the imperative, means this is your duty. This is what you should do. 
you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I'll read it again. It's real simple. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But you know, I thought we were to live by grace, not by duty. I thought we were to, we're saved, not by works. So if it's a duty, it's a work. Well, look at it like this. If I'm a basketball player and I can't dribble, I'm a liar. I'm a great basketball player, but I hate that dribbling. It's so stupid, so dumb. So you go to the coach, I'm playing on the team, but I don't want to dribble the ball. <laughs> what? It's essential to basketball. If I'm a cook, I hate stoves and boiling water. I will not use a stove. Yeah, but you got to cook. I don't care. I love cooking except for that stove and that boiling water. You know, I'm going into surgery, but blood, I can't stand it. Hate blood. Man, I can't wait to be a surgeon. If I'm a truck driver and I don't know how to start a car and I hate driving on the road, but I'm a great truck driver. <laughs> Silly! I, I, I'm going to be a marathon runner, but I'll tell you, after about a mile and a half, I'm done, man. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. Well, you want to be a marathon runner? The best. Just after that first mile, I hate it. I hate it. Well, I'm a Christian. I am the greatest Christian, but do you love your brother? No, but I love Christ. You're lying. See, people, the reason we are to love people is I want to show you why. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And I want you to follow the logic. Again, we're dealing with Moses in the ark. I mean, Noah in the ark. Genesis 9, verse 6. And this is right after the ark lands on dry land, and God gives Noah some commandments, some continuous commandments to some of the first ones. In verse 6, he says... Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. This is the number one argument for capital punishment, meaning taking a life is of such heinous crime that it needs to be protected by your life you'll forfeit it. I don't want you to take a life so much that if you do take a life by murdering somebody, your life is going to be taken away from you. Why? Why is a life so important? Because of the rest of the verse. For God made man in his own image. That is an amazing statement. I think we don't understand the, the significance of being made in the image of God. I, I just don't think we do. Theologians will say the image bearing means that we have a mind like God, creative abilities like God, will, motion. But I think it goes deeper. It's more intrinsic than that, and I'll illustrate. 
You guys understand it more than anything. When you have your first child, when you have your first child, you love them like you've never loved anything before, and I can't tell you why, but you just do. You will die for them. You stare at them. You're proud of them. Why? What did they do? They're just sitting there. But they, they're mine. They look like me. They have my image stamped on them. There is something that where I am connected by image. So is God. So when he sees every single person in the world, he has that same feeling towards them. So anytime somebody abuses my kid, I'm angry. Don't you think God's angry when you don't stop loving somebody? Because that person is made in God's image. I'll tell you, I really learned this, and it has a lot to do with what you guys saw here for Jewels for Jesus. I have a sister, and I... And I, I don't, I appreciate you guys indulging me. I talk about my family a lot, but it's all I know. I have a sister that's 57, but she has been, since the age of two, she hasn't mentally grown. And she's actually digressed to the point where she's got about a three-month-old baby mind. And growing up, she couldn't do anything for herself. She couldn't dress herself. She couldn't feed herself. She needed diapers. She needed somebody to push her on a wheelchair. She needed somebody to get her on a bus. She, everybody had to do everything for her. Who did that? My mom. My mom woke up every morning doing that for my sister. Still does. Puts her to bed. My dad took the responsibility to feed her. He said, that's my daughter. I'm going to feed her. In her disease, it's called Rett syndrome. They usually die from dehydration. And my sister would have to be fed a lot of food. So my dad would sit at the table about an hour longer than everybody else, just feeding my sister food. She took a long time to eat, but she didn't get, her metabolism was so fast, she didn't get full. And the way you could tell my sister was full is she started, a tear would just fall off her cheek. My dad would be, yep, she's full. But he would sit at that table hour after we were done. He'd have this... He'd have a towel across his leg. I'll never forget, he'd have a towel across his leg. And my sister drooled a lot. It just went down her chin. He'd take that towel, wipe it off, and just keep feeding her. Keep feeding her. And you ask, why would you? Well, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. Sometimes my dad would use my sister for his advantage. Like if I didn't go and do the dishes and I'd be on the couch, he'd take my daughter, my sister, and lean her over the couch, let her drool on me so I'd get up off the couch. He knew how to use her to his advantage. It really worked. But I will say this about my sister, Lara. She had nothing to offer us as a family. Or did she? You know what I think my sister offered us? My parents treated us a little bit different because of her. Because we were healthy, they were okay with us. They knew my, they loved my sister for nothing she did for them. And that kind of carried over to us. We just felt accepted, even if we were good, bad, successful. I think most parents raise their kids and they are, they love them based on accomplishment or based on ability or based on grades, not based on image. And when your love for image, you feel, 
You feel so secure, I can't even tell you. When you are loved for image, you can do anything. You have intrinsic worth. We are to love people the same way. And the sad part is, we love based on what they can do for me. And it's just the opposite. We love because they're made in the image of God. That's it. So my question for you, and really this is true for me, why, how do I, how, how I love that person may be the clearest sign of how I love God. I'd invite Jared to come on up, and as he comes up, I, I'm going to close with some prayer, and then Jared's got a song. I want you, we're going to remain silent for a little bit, I want you to ask God to reveal some people in your life who you have quit. You're done, and you've got to reopen that account and ask God to give you love again. If you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your patience with us, your mercy. Thank you for, God, how you have exampled through your son how he became poor so we could be rich. Help us to be the same. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.